You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Leanne Caldwell, co-author of the Early 202 newsletter here at The Post, filling in for Jonathan Capehart this week. We're going to discuss former President Trump's fourth indictment and its impact on the 2024 presidential campaign with our opinions columnists. But first, we'll begin with Amy Gardner. She's national political reporter on the post-democracy team covering voting and elections. Welcome to First Look, Amy. Thank you so much, Leanne. Amy, I'm so happy that we have you on today because, of course, you are the person who broke this story two and a half years ago, that call uh, between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking him to find votes that would change the 2020 election. So after two and a half years, we have this indictment. Can you just give us a brief overview of what it says, what it means? Sure. So um, it was that call that originally stoked uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's interest in launching an investigation into President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 result in Georgia. But she very quickly sort of expanded the scope of the investigation. And um, and then things slowed down. I don't think that they were slowing down. They were busy. But, they, but you know, two and a half years later, we have this 98-page um, indictment that landed late Monday, uh, 19 defendants, and it's it goes well beyond the phone call to Brad Raffensperger, as, as you know. Uh, it encompasses the meeting of alternate electors, a Trump slate of electors at the Georgia Capitol on December 14th. It involves the harassment, alleged harassment of two election workers in Fulton County, uh, it also includes a breach of election equipment in Coffee County, which uh, included some alleged coordination with Trump campaign officials. So she's basically uh, she's telling a story start to finish from the immediate days after the election all the way to uh, September of the following year when Trump was still trying to get Brad Raffensperger to decertify the results. Uh, and she's using a very, very expansive racketeering statute in Georgia, the RICO statute, which the federal version of which is what was originally crafted to go after mobsters in New York City. So uh, so it's just a really, really ambitious and sweeping indictment. District Attorney of Fulton County, Fannie Willis, she proposes a March 4th uh, timeline for the start date of that trial. Some are saying that's pretty ambitious considering the scope and the number of defendants that she's bringing to trial. What do you make of that timeline? I would be one of those people that views that as pretty ambitious. You've got 19 defendants and 19 teams of lawyers and the pretrial motions have already begun. Mark Meadows has put in, the former chief of staff, who's one of the defendants, has already put in a motion seeking to remove this case to federal court. I believe that hearing is this Monday. Uh, and so, and that's the first shot, you know, we're, we're going to have so many uh, motions, we're going to have discovery, the defense attorneys are going to say that they need more time to read all of the evidence as it starts to uh, get uh, shared, just as we're seeing in the parallel fe uh, federal case where Trump's attorneys are demanding that they need more time to do discovery. So yeah, March 4th is ambitious. 
It's also, she's also saying that it will only take three weeks to conduct the trial, which is equally remarkable. And then a, a final data point that I'll share is that the presidential primary in Georgia is March 12th or 13th, I believe. So this trial would overlap with the presidential preference primary in Georgia. And I'm not sure which would be more uh, fascinating that she knew that and scheduled the trial that way anyway, or that she didn't know that. Three weeks. That is quite quick, it seems. Um, we'll see how all this plays out. But will this interfere with the federal investigation um, by special counsel Jack Smith? What do you think? Well, I don't know if it'll interfere with the case in any kind of scheduling manner. What I do think is that uh, there, there's plenty of uh, opining happening out there that this case has the potential to, to harm the federal case. Uh, Jack Smith's indictment of President Trump, uh, the special prosecutor for the Department of Justice, is tight and compact, and it is narrowly construed for counts. He did not go for any ambitious charges such as uh, insurrection, uh, you know, which a lot of advocates have been pressing him to do in the public square. Um, and Fonnie Willis is doing something very different with the RICO statute. And, and that is prompting a lot of criticism uh, and a lot of questions of overreach and uh, political motives to interfere with the 2024 election. And if those accusations start to take root in the public uh, consciousness, I think that has the potential to harm Jack Smith's effort in terms of public opinion. So that's mm -hmm. what I would say about the impact on the federal investigation. Hmm. You have, like I said at the beginning, you broke this story. You have been covering it so closely for more than two years. Is there anything, Amy, that surprised you with this indictment? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I knew that it was going to be sweeping. We all believed and understood that it was going to be a, a RICO charge because Fonnie Willis has a history of using and liking that statute and has talked about it as giving prosecutors this tool to tell a full story. Uh, I was surprised to see how many acts she included in the indictment. I mean, one of the one of the sort of details of the indictment that's prompting some of the outrage is that the some of the individual acts don't themselves sound like crimes. For instance, Mark Meadows um, is charged in relation to a, a text message that he sent to Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania in the fall of 2020, seeking contact information for the Speaker of the House of Representatives of Pennsylvania, uh, Brian Cutler. And so uh, how is that a crime? That seems like an exercise of free speech, and it seems like an exercise of another First Amendment protection that we all have, which is that we have the right to redress grievances with government. Uh, and so uh those there are there are a number of instances of of acts that are described in the indictment that sound like that that don't sound like crimes willis explained in her press conference monday night uh, an act that supports the evidence for the larger racketeering uh conspiracy or enterprise does not itself have to be a crime it it and in fact a lot of these acts are described as being in furtherance of the conspiracy but that so while that's a tool that rico allows her to to use uh it's also one of the details or aspects of the indictment that is prompting some of the public criticism hmm. 
We also learned this week that uh, the names, photos, and addresses uh, belonging to the Fulton County Grand Jury, reportedly anyway, are circulating on social media. Pro-Trump forums and websites that have previously been linked to violent extremist attacks are, are part of this. Explain the safety concerns for grand jurors and also why I was shocked that the names of the grand jurors were right included in this indictment. Why did that happen? Well, that, that is a function of Georgia law. In Georgia, grand jurors' names are public, so that's just a reality that they have to deal with, um, unlike federal cases. Um, the jurors were sent home on Monday, and even though their term has not expired, there was an expectation, our understanding from reporting is that there was an expectation that this would be their final case for security reasons, so that they, you know, when a, when a grand jury is seated in Georgia, it, it sits for two months, and here's a, a number of cases. You may remember that on Monday night there was initial incorrect reporting that this was going to be 10 indictments, but that was actually a, a document that reflected all of the work that they did that day, uh, this juror jury. Uh, so, uh, you know, grand juries go through lots and lots of cases, big and small, but this one was going to be their last one, we understood. Uh, and they haven't been back to the courthouse for that reason. Um, you know, the, the Fulton County Sheriff's Department has announced that they are investigating the posting of those names and addresses on uh, Truth Social, President Trump's uh, preferred social media uh, app. Um, although I do think it's interesting that Trump himself has suddenly shown a teeny bit of discretion. Uh, yesterday, he announced that he was canceling his planned uh, press conference on Monday to announce some report that allegedly would show that there was lots of fraud and that he's innocent. And um, he mentioned in his statement that that, uh, that that was on the advice of his lawyers um, who were telling him, please don't do this. Let's put this into a legal filing in our case. So uh, perhaps there is some understanding that's starting to sink in among the defendants that um, they might actually be contributing to the evidence against them in this case if there continues to be threats or false statements or attempted intimidation of jurors. Hmm. Amy, we are out of time, but thank you so much for your reporting uh, over the past two and a half years. It's been instrumental, and thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks, Leanne. I'm going to continue the conversation now with our opinions columnist. Let me welcome in Deputy Opinion Editor David Vondrelli and Opinions Columnist Christine Emba. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to be here. Christine, I'm going to start with you. Trump is facing 91 criminal charges across four cases and two civil cases. Trump's legal team is asking at least one of those trials to be pushed to 2026. But looking at the calendar, if Trump doesn't get his way, he could be in the courtroom for most of the first six months of, the, of 2024, which is obviously uh, the height of the Republican primary as well. How will that impact his campaign, do you think, Christine? Well, obviously, being in the courtroom instead of on the campaign trail would be a huge blow to his campaign. I would say that these indictments would be distractions to his campaign, except, honestly, I think they might overwhelm it entirely. Um, I mean, right now, as you just discussed, actually, uh, there is a motion for the first trial to begin, I believe, the day before uh, the Iowa caucuses, the first in the nation caucuses. Another trial would begin 
um, <laughs> before the Republican primary. And obviously, Trump would have to be in the courtroom uh, communicating with lawyers, doing back and forth in his defense, while ostensibly also reaching the public. It does seem like a lot to juggle. So Donald Trump is still calling this a witch hunt. But yesterday we spoke with an influential Republican lawyer, Alberto Gonzalez, of course, the former attorney general under George Bush. He says Trump was always going to get indicted. Let's listen to what he says and we'll talk on the other side. I suppose because um, the former president's made a convincing argument that uh, this is all aimed at him and that uh, the reason he's being prosecuted is because he's a front runner to receive the Republican nomination. But, you know, I've got news for him uh, and, I, and news for his supporters. He would still be investigated and subject to prosecution for the things that have happened, even if he weren't running for the office of the presidency. And I, there's no question in my mind that there would still be investigations, still be prosecutions. And it has, it has so little, or and certainly should have so little to do with the fact that he's a nominee uh, for president. So David, is this latest indictment, is this different? Is this a turning point? No, um, it's more of the same. Um, but I agree with the former uh, attorney general that this was going to happen whether Trump was running or not. In fact, you can make a case that the reason Trump is running is because he's in so much legal trouble and he sees uh, running for president or potentially being reelected as president as a way out of his legal trouble. Um, the Mr. Gonzalez is exactly right. I mean, there, there's no denial that uh, Trump had boxes of documents at Mar-a-Lago. There's nobody denying that uh, Trump made the phone call to Brad Raffensperger that uh, they attempted to um, stop the counting of the electoral votes on January 6th. All these things are uh, uh, true. And the, so uh, there's no question that uh, uh, the authorities were going to look at, are they legal? Uh, which is what we're gonna find out in these trials. But the idea that he was gonna do all these things and not incur any legal trouble is just laughable. Hmm. Christine, new polling by the Associated Press really echoes previous polling that shows that Americans are really divided on what they think about these indictments and Donald Trump. But one thing in the Associated Press polling that came out yesterday is that 16% of people, which is a small fraction, think that he's completely blameless, that he did nothing wrong. What does that tell you? Well, I mean, it tells us kind of what we've known all along, that Trump has a, a sort of core group of supporters who will defend him come hell or high water. Um, do they actually believe that he did nothing wrong? I'm actually not so sure of that. I think they may believe that some of these indictments are politically motivated or that, you know, Trump did some things that he shouldn't have done, but doesn't rise to the level of a criminal proceeding. But basically, they're willing to follow Trump wherever he leads. That's 16%, though, which, while you know, a meaningful slice of the electorate is not, you know, a majority. 
And in talking to voters, you know, I was out in Iowa uh, last week. It does seem that it's beginning to sink into many that Trump simply has a lot of baggage at this point, mm. uh, whether it's indictments, whether it's uh, questions about his past performance and things that he said. So while there is that that core base of Trump supporters who are never going to let him go, it does still seem possible that some people may be peeled away as further evidence mounts. And you lead me so well into my next question for David, which is uh, Trump is raising millions of dollars, but he's also spending million dollars on his legal defense. Um, as Christine mentioned, he has a lot of baggage. He has these indictments. He has a packed primary calendar, a packed legal calendar. What do you think his biggest liability is right now? What's his biggest challenge? Uh, that he's Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> that there are no mysteries about him left. Uh, that everybody in the United States knows everything about him that they want to know. And they've made up their minds about him, uh, for or against. That for him is a problem because the majority of Americans have made up their minds they don't want Donald Trump ever to be president again. So that's trouble. He, he, he's not going to teach us anything new. Oh, my God, there's a new Donald Trump. He is what he is. Everybody knows what it is, and they know what they think about it. Hmm. Let's move on to um, something else that is happening next week. Of course, the very first Republican primary debate. Uh, we still don't know if Donald Trump is going to show or not, but Christine, sources tell CNN um, that Trump's not going to participate. Uh, we'll see if that sticks. Um, and he's considering counter-programming instead, uh, perhaps giving an interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson. What do you think about Trump skipping the debate? I'm, I'm amused by it, honestly, but it also makes sense. Uh, as David said so eloquently, everyone knows who Trump is. There are no real surprises. We know his record. We kind of know what he's going to say because he repeats himself uh, very often. All of the candidates who he would have to debate also know his record, I think, back and front and are preparing and, in fact, have been preparing for the last several months to attack him. Um, they do not have a lot of love left for him, especially uh Chris Christie. Um, so I think that, you know, for Trump, it kind of makes sense to simply not be there. What what new information is he going to give viewers? Very little. But there is a risk in him taking the stage. I also mm -hmm. do, however, find it rather comical that he's talking about counter-programming. Um, you know, he mentioned this interview with Tucker Carlson, who was a former Fox News anchor. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering where that would stream on the platform formerly known as Twitter, will people really be tuning in? Great points, um, David. According to the New York Times, Ron DeSantis's allies have a debate strategy for him next week. It includes attacking Joe Biden, attacking the media, um, attacking uh, aggressively Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, and to defend Trump if he's attacked. What do you think about that strategy? Uh, it's more from Ron DeSantis. Um, you know, this is a, a an overblown candidacy with the air going out of it rapidly. Uh, that's not a strategy that we just heard. You know, uh, well, attacking the media 
and attacking the Democrat. Uh, no Republican in my lifetime has needed a memo to tell them that. I mean, that's just basic. That's like snapping the ball in football uh, for Republicans. Uh, attacking Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, uh, he'd first have to tell the American public who that is before he can attack him. And uh, and and defending Donald Trump is insane. Uh, the winner of the nomination, if it's not Trump, is going to have to beat Trump, and you don't beat him by defending him. It's uh, uh, whatever uh, DeSantis is paying Jeff Rowe. It's too much money. <laughs> um, Christine, you have written a lot about masculinity. Um, there's a new piece in the New York Times today by conservative David French, and he says, quote, Hatred combined with masculine insecurity and cowardice is hurting young right-wing men into outright bigotry and prejudice. What is your response to that? Do you agree? And how do you see this, if you do, how do you see this showing up in politics in the 2024 campaign? No, I, I think that David French is exactly right there. I mean, I've written in the past, my piece, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness, came out last month about how young men in America are both looking for direction and looking for new ways to sort of identify themselves as men, to, to reinforce their image of their manhood and masculinity. And in many cases, what that looks like is attack, taking on an, an aggressive posture. Unfortunately, when that leaks into politics, it can get very ugly. The things that we're seeing young men, especially on, on the right, adopt an attack are, you know, forms of bigotry, attacks on women or the feminist movement, blaming liberal elites for whatever problems they're facing and attacking them in terms both gentle and very unkind. I mean, recently, just in the discourse, we've seen, speaking of Ron DeSantis, uh, several of Ron DeSantis's sort of younger aides and advisors be, you know, asked to leave the campaign because to both prop up the campaign and their own masculinity. They've adopted uh, far-right symbolism, sort of, frankly, fascist imagery, um, in an, a, an attempt to seem tough. And that is a very unhealthy direction for our politics in America to take right now. David, you've written similarly in your recent book, The Book of Charlie. You tell the story of Charlie's life, who is in many ways the masculine archetype. He's stoic, resilient veteran who lived to 109 years old. What do you think Charlie would say about what Christine and David have been writing about? Where does this type of masculinity fit into today's politics? Well, that's a great question. And thanks for mentioning the book. Uh, uh, the, the authority on this subject is sitting with us, Christine Emba her magnificent essay for the, the Post. If you're one of the few Americans left who haven't read it already, <laughs> I recommend that you they go to it because it, it is definitive. Charlie White would have been appalled by the kind of uh, faux toughness, fake uh, strength that's uh, demonstrated by these uh, sad young men in the uh, alt-right. Um, they're resentful, they're uh, hateful, they um, uh, are the opposite of what real men are, which is kind, 
uh, caring for other people uh, and uh, not complaining about their own lives, but seeking to make the world better. That's uh, what uh, ideal manhood was to him and to me and to most uh, American men. David, the Washington Post has a piece titled, Awkward Americans See Themselves in uh, Ron DeSantis. And it highlights DeSantis's trouble being able to connect with voters. What do you, does the governor's anti-charisma matter? No. <laughs> I mean, uh, his campaign is not taking off. He got a, he couldn't have asked for a better launch. He had a big win in Florida at a time when the Republican Party generally was getting uh, wiped out uh, in 2022. Uh, everything was teed up for Ron DeSantis, and he went since then has uh, just uh, squandered uh, all of that lead. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to get back from that. Um, if you are a candidate who really doesn't have a relationship with the American people. Um, candidates who have a bad start, like uh, uh, Joe Biden last time around, or um, uh, John McCain in 2008, they can, they can come back from that if the public already knows them or thinks they know them. But if it's a, somebody they've never met before, who comes out and squanders their uh, early campaign, it's pretty much, history would say that that's kind of dead meat. Uh, Christine, I want to ask you about Senator Tim Scott. He has he and his super PAC have raised a ton of money. He seems to be increasing in the polls a little bit. He's, of course, the Republican senator from South Carolina. Do you think he could break through, especially when he has this entire campaign of of optimism and happiness and being nice. Yeah, actually, I, I do think that that's possible. I mean, we talked, you know, just earlier in this conversation about how Trump is a known quantity and what he's known for at this point is his, his baggage, his negativity, the problems that are trailing him. Tim Scott, in contrast, still is enough of a clean slate to be seen as an aspirational candidate. Um, there are blanks to be filled in, but the hints behind those blanks is that you can fill them in positively. So Tim Scott, I think, still has room to, to appeal to people and to build on his appeal. He doesn't have to come up from behind uh, or correct people's assumptions yet, as Trump does. Instead, he has the freedom to build positive new associations. And I do think that voters are getting a little bit tired of seeing the same person, the same problems, the same issues, the same voice. And for many, I think that Tim Scott actually might feel like a breath of fresh air. Great, David, we are almost out of time. So if you can answer quickly, it would be great. But um, <laughs> I wanna ask you about the Democratic primary. Um, I actually wrote this week about Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips. He supports Joe Biden wholeheartedly, but he does not want him to run. For president. He wants him to step aside. He doesn't think Biden can beat Donald Trump in a general election. What's your reaction to that? Uh, he's right. And it would be great if the whole Democratic Party would agree with him rapidly and find a new candidate. The only thing the Republicans have going for them right now is that the Democrats are determined to uh, nominate a, a man who would be uh, in his mid-80s 
at the end of a second term. And uh, we've never float, flirted with that before. We wouldn't do it at the top of, uh, of most companies uh, that aren't controlled by uh, uh, crazy old men. Um, and we shouldn't probably do it with, it's a big risk with the United States. So uh, he's identified the one weakness of uh, that the Democrats have right now, and uh, he went straight to it. Mm, great. David, Christine, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank Lovely you. Lovely to be here. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.